Paul Wiseman, Fit to Print. Thank you very much for joining the program here today. Of course, Fit to Print, give us a little bit of a description of what that is. I know you from being active on social media with oil and gas content and news and that sort of thing. So Fit to Print, give yourself a quick plug, sir. Okay, well, uh, I started off in uh, 1995 uh, writing advertorials for the Midland Reporter Telegram. And during that time, uh, part of what I did there was to write in for the oil and gas industry. And so fast forward 20 years or so, uh, I began to branch out and do some writing, uh, not only of advertorials, but uh, for other magazines, uh, industry publications, and uh, like the Pre uh, Premium Basin Oil and Gas Magazine and some others. And so I, I've really focused now on writing, not only in publications, but also um, doing advertising and that sort of thing for uh, the oil and gas industry. Talk to me a little bit about some of the trends that you've been seeing going on, because I totally understand the type of writing that you've done. And, you know, it's a lot of 5,000 foot view and a lot of, uh, you know, specific uh, micro as well. So when we look at what's going on in the pipeline right now, this is the big, you know, story, the, the Atlantic pipeline, the Dominion and Oh, I forget the other. Duke Energy, they, they decided to scrap that pipeline. Of course, the judge with the DAPL Dakota Access Pipeline put a halt on that. Major shockwaves totally through the pipeline industry. Um, there's been a little bit of a trend for, for building pipelines, it seems. So this, to me, it's as a almost like a reverse or, or a quick kind of a, a knee-jerk type of a thing. I know there's been an environmental movement but talk to me about your observations what you've seen when it comes to the pipelines you know over the last several years and where we're at today well being in the, in the permian it's, it's it's sort of a like being on an island because pretty much everybody in the permian agrees that we need to build a pipeline so when i look around at the rest of the world it's uh, or the rest of the united states it, it, it's it's there, there are two problems with blocking pipelines, I mean, certainly we want them not to leak and we want them to be safe and, and not pollute the waters. I mean, uh, uh, even the, 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 the companies, or maybe especially the companies operating them, want that because that's product they can't sell and, and they do want to be good stewards. But the two problems are, first of all, when you don't have a pipeline, you've got to ship it somewhere else, some way else, and that's likely to be rail. Well, that, that's a whole lot more dangerous to truck um, uh, you know, flammable liquid through downtown Minneapolis or whatever. And, and secondly, <clears throat> in the Northeast, that puts us to importing uh, liquefied natural gas or something like that from Russia, which is known to be a huge polluter. So it seems backwards to me to, uh, to continually block pipelines that are, uh, I mean, no nothing is perfect, but they're way ahead of what the alternative is. Where I get a little bit confused is the rationale and the reason behind this. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this the, the, the judge stepped in because he wants more studied studies done for environmental purposes, correct? That's my understanding. Okay, yes. okay good. We're on the same page there. Um, I haven't seen anything really discussed about the environmental impact, about the, the shift from 
pipeline to rails and cars. You know, you, you brought up the rail part, but there's also the, the I'm sorry, the trucks, trucks and cars, if you will. Because at the, at the end of the day, they're still going to move that stuff. I mean, the oil and gas companies have never been shy about, you know, they're, they're interested in results, and they're going to figure out a way to get the results. And if you're going to take away our pipeline, well, then we're going to have to give Warren Buffett a call and Matt Rose, and can you fire up the uh, old rail cars that you invested $5 billion in five years ago? I mean, so th- there's, there's backup plans is what I'm getting at, but... It seems to me that that shift would also have a shift in the environmental impact. Does does that make sense to you? Yes, uh, that's a, you're, we're on the, definitely on the same page there because that's what I was saying. That it's uh, when you have oil or gas or natural gas liquids or whatever buried, you know, under the ground. If something does go wrong, God forbid, then you've got a chance to contain that. If, if a rail car comes off the track, or some somebody runs a crossing uh, signal and runs into it, man, you have a problem there. So, uh, and it's more expensive. The trucks are being the most expensive because you've got one driver and you know, a, a few barrels in there. As a, for the train, you've got one engine and, and you know thousands of barrels. So the, the smaller the load, the more expensive it is to pay somebody to, to oversee that down the road. So you do end up with uh, in, in an economy like this, you might end up with some production shut in, I suppose, in some – it might be the difference between making some fields profitable and not, or at least some wells. I take a look at the agriculture issues right away. Up in North Dakota, we've got pulse crops. We've got – actually, I think North Dakota has got – what was it, 16 or 18 or something like that of the number one crop production in the United States from, you know, uh, chickpeas to, to honey. So we, we rely on the rail a lot for hitting the ports, if you will. The last time I remember that the rail got an increase of, of transporting crude oil, the farmers got really upset. I mean, not upset at anybody, but they, they kind of felt like they were left out, like reprioritized, if you will. Uh, have you looked at that, or are you familiar with what I'm talking about, how the ripple gets into the ag market about shipping the goods and services that the ag industry does? Well, it's uh, not directly, but it makes a lot of sense in supply and demand. If there's more demand on the rail system and it gets crowded, then prices are going to go up for everybody, and it's also going to slow down. You know, I'm sure the in agriculture, you have a narrow window to ship your, your products out before they spoil in the field or in storage or something, and if you're having to wait longer times for rail availability, then I'm sure that would be a problem, and that's going to raise food costs or Right, you know, we're, and we're already, uh, with the COVID-19 stuff, I understand they're burying crops and, and, and burying animals and stuff like that already. So that would just be another strain on, on the food supply. I'm looking at the release put out by Energy Transfer Partners, and they did mention this in their release. Farmers will suffer as crude transportation will move to rail, displacing corn, wheat, and soy crops that would normally be moved to market. Ironically, the counties along these rail lines will face increased environmental risks due to the increased amount of crude oil traveling by rail. Um, there, there's another ironic twist in this whole environmental justification to where now we're going to be, you know, having these things moved by rail. And energy transfer partners, quick to point that out. So, again, going back to the, the safety ramifications and the environmental ram, uh, uh, responsibility, if you will, 
seems a bit odd that this happened so quickly and, and, and just out of nowhere. Out of, in fact, I was interviewing somebody, and I had a, a different news story that came out earlier that day about uh, energy transfer in, implementing some force majeure clause because they were, like, doubling down on the, the, I guess, they thought, you know, everything was fine. Uh, you know, and then all of a sudden, boom, yeah. came out of nowhere. So uh, what have you heard from people in your network in terms of do they feel this is going to impact them? You're you're down in Texas, so I, I don't know how much this is going to impact you guys, but if it's oil and gas, Texas is impacted. You know that. Sure. And uh, uh, if I could step back real quickly to the last topic, just a little bit on agriculture, I had a thought there. What the agriculture is already strained from from what I think are ridiculous requirements of, for turning corn into ethanol. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that, that takes a whole lot of productive land out of food and, uh, and, and all that to start with. So anyway, I did want to get back to that. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it makes it very difficult for investment money to go into these projects because many of them, uh, the, the Keystone Pipeline and others have been, you know, a decade or more in the planning and, and obviously in the best case situation it's going to be three to five years before you get your a return on your investment but when it stretches out and, and you get if you had a checklist we did a b c and d and now we get to have a pipeline and you don't have and so you do all that and then suddenly there's a d e and f added after you've already in, in in you know in that case already built the pipeline and are running it um i can't imagine why anybody with, with, with unknown sudden risks like that would want to put, you know, tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars into a project anymore. So that's going to, that's going to really put a damper on things. Uh, we have less of that in, in Texas because the whole state basically, you know, <laughs> uh, the economy runs on oil and gas, but even there, uh, uh, you know, in some areas there are some issues, but yeah, I mean, it's going to impact prices everywhere. So I wanted to transition into an article that you sent me earlier this week about uh, one of the topics we wanted to talk about, which was making the case for oil and gas, which is let's look at some of the positives, some of the uh, g- g- uh, opportunities that exist out there, because I've been saying this whole time, they just printed $7 trillion and pumped it into the marketplace. Go get it. You know, I mean, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's controlled and managed and this and that, but at the same time, there are opportunities out there. They're difficult to find. I'm not saying it's an easy time right now, and that's one of the reasons why I appreciate everybody that listens to The Crude Life, because we're we're out there actively looking for those positive investment opportunities out there. We had a great conversation yesterday about natural gas. Natural gas is one of the brightest spots right now. Crude oil is going through a little bit of a tough time right now, and coming off of this pipeline, that's that's a little bit of a devastation but we just got done talking about how geez if you're in the rail car business or the trucking business adequate opportunity for you there part of the ebbs and flows of the economy so with that being said making the case for oil and gas let's talk about that a little bit because at the end of the day at the end of the day 96 percent of what we use has fossil fuels from our toothpaste to the toothbrush to the transportation it takes to get to the toothpaste to your house so so much of what we do does you know fossil fuels in our lifetime it might decrease but it ain't going away so therefore there's going to be ample times to kind of you know 
find some opportunity. Let's talk about that today. You know, you, you sent over the article, make the case for oil and gas. Let's do that a little bit. We just talked a little bit about some trucking and natural gas. Where do you see kind of some areas of uh, positivity right now in the oil and gas sector, if, if I may, may be so bold? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think what you said is, uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm calling you on my cell phone, which is mostly plastic and, and uh, some rare earth. So that's more mining in, in there. So uh, the, 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 mis, the, the misstatement, that's not the right word, but uh, to say that we can do all that we do now without fossil fuels, with wind or, or whatever, is, is ridiculous. The, the reason that the number one fuel uh, around the world uh, is uh, petroleum-based, either uh, uh, gasoline or diesel, is it's, it packs more energy than anything else. It's quickly uh, restored. You can fill up in five minutes. A uh, large truck might take 10, but it's the most efficient and the most useful fuel. And we're not going to be able to travel uh, anywhere near like we do now, even if we were to, it, there's not, well, there's not enough lithium in the world for batteries uh, to, bat, to uh, fill all these cars with. So I, uh, there, there's just nothing that replaces oil and gas. And are, are there some things we can do to make it cleaner? Probably. Uh, and I think the changes, uh, the positive for natural gas is the opportunities to generate electricity with it, replacing coal and, and uh, I guess mainly coal. Uh, that, that's much cleaner. We've, the U.S. has already dropped its, its emissions over the last 20 years by I believe I don't. I, I can't. I can't. Don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think by more than any other industrialized nation, uh, because of uh, higher fuel efficiency added to cars, and uh, or required by car, for cars, and uh, then switching to natural gas. And uh, there's still some things that you have to have coal for. Ironically, to make those wind turbines, the only thing that generates enough heat to, to forge that metal in the wind turbines is coal. So you can't even have renewable, so-called renewable energy without oil and gas and, and uh, fossil fuels. And so I, I think there's what, – what the problem is that the, the uh, radical environmentalists – and we all want a clean environment, but the radical environmentalists are not telling the whole story. They're, they're making a, a wild pitch, and that, you know, there are plenty of people that um, – there are questions about whether – uh, climate change is is as bad as advertised, and whether whatever climate change is happening is man uh, generated, and th that's a lot of the as the what's driving the environmental is that, that the climate change is going to kill all of us within the next 20 years, and the predictions that were made back in the 70s that New York or was going to be underwater by 2020. Those things didn't happen, so there's not a very good track record of, of predictions on what's happening there. So all that goes back to, uh, you know, we need to be good stewards of what we have, but using fossil fuels or, or doing away with all use of fossil fuels is not practical, and it it's it's not necessary. 
I think the media plays a big part of this, as well as the politicians, the elected leaders, even some of the uh, organizations that are paid to promote the industry. Uh, I, I think that there's been a um, failure there to allow. Uh, the media has allowed some of the uh, polarization to get to a point where it's just gotten ridiculous. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the politicians have got caught up in the – I call it the pro wrestling of politics because it's – it's it's a contrived dance. I mean, instead of headlocks and arm bars, they use bullet points and sound bites. But each side, they know what they're doing, and, and it, it's a like I say, it's a contrived dance, uh, choreographed ballet, if you will. And a lot of the uh, the um, uh, promotional ad, uh, organizations have become advocacy organizations, so they've just become kind of um, sub sub. Uh, groups of the politicians and, and the interest behind that. And I think that has changed the industry to the tune to where, in fact, in the last interview I just did, we had a very nice organic conversation about how the industry has seemed to become reactive as opposed to proactive. For so long, they were proactive. And they've gotten reactive. And we, we organically came with the abandoned orphan well issue to where this is a real opportunity for industry to become proactive again. Um, but there's so many things going on that a 16 year old girl was going around the country saying fossil fuels are so bad that the industry got reactive to it. And then the new green deal came out and the industry got reactive to that. So um, have you noticed that, that the industry has become a little bit more reactive instead of proactive or, or am I kind of just <laughs> speaking out of school well, here? I, I think there's some of both. I think uh, one of the things that the people I talked to, in that, uh, article, in that article in the magazine, one of them I talked to was uh, Alex Epstein, who's uh, got a book out and has, is, a, is a major force in that he and some of the others said what we need to do is get out there like you are and like some of these other organizations are. Uh, I think most, uh, most oil and gas producing states have advocacy groups, uh, New Mexico Oil and Gas Association, Texas Oil and Gas, Permian Basin Oil and Gas, uh, association uh, or Permian Basin Producers Association, excuse me, they'll, they'll be mad at me if I <laughs> misquote them, but advocacy groups like this need, uh, and general the general public, we need to be active on social media, like I know you are and, and, and I am and others. That's where we, that's where the battle is being fought, the Twitter and, uh, and Facebook in particular, and if we get out there and counter some of these wild un, un factual claims with fact we can't make up stuff either and sometimes i'll be honest i see that on the uh, what i consider my side i see stuff that's unsubstantiated on something that uh, i would otherwise agree with and we can't do that we've got to be keep uh, our heads in the game and not fall prey to jumping on this the sensational bandwagon uh, and make an emotional argument sure uh, how would you like to freeze in your house? You know, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, if you don't have adequate energy for heat, that's what, that's what's, what could happen in, uh, especially in North Dakota. But, uh, as far, we've got to base that on the fact that renewables can't meet the energy needs of the United States. Plus renewables don't make plastic for phones, for computers, for the dashboard of your car, for, as you said, like 96% of, of what you use is somehow one way or another connected with it. So 
I, I do see some people backing off, but I see others that are joining the fight, and we need more people joining the fight. It's interesting to see how, on you know, Colorado, I've kind of deemed it regulations gone wild. Uh, I, I've, I mean, they're putting, you know, soundproof walls around the, the different uh, rigs and wells and things like that. And it just seems like there's so, so many different, uh, it's, it's kind of the test state, I guess, for a lot of oil and gas regulations. But the thing I have seen at the bright spot is the natural gas. Uh, Planet of the Humans, I watched that movie, the documentary, yeah. the Michael Morton documentary, which he's not in, yeah. by the way. Anybody who hasn't seen it yet, Michael Moore is not in it. He just yeah. uses his name, and it's uh, kind of a, I, I related to it very much because when I started this, I was gonna you know I was gonna investigate against oil and gas because I was I was gonna go do my own thing, be an in, independent writer, and go and you know I had a, a couple magazines that were gonna you know publish my stuff. I had some newspapers, I had a radio show, I had some the I had podcasts back in the day, whatever you want to call it. And I saw very quickly that uh, my initial bias was wrong. And the oil and gas industry was not the bad guys like the media portrayed them to be. And so I, I completely changed my, my tune. And that's how I felt the Planet of the Humans was, where it had activists, environmentalists, that realized that, wow, things are really not the way that I thought they were. And so went and investigated their own and... The part of that movie that I thought was so fantastic was, yeah, it, it talked about some of the greed that that is involved, but it said that natural gas isn't going anywhere. <laughs> it's not, yeah. it, is that, hey, guys, it, you, you can say whatever you want about crude oil or coal, but natural gas ain't going anywhere. If you want wind turbines and if you want Tesla cars and you want a cell phone, you better get used to natural gas sticking around. So that's what I took yeah. away from it. How about you? Uh, to be honest, I didn't watch it all the way through, but uh, he, he did point out, uh, I did get far enough to see how, uh, where he talked about how much oil and gas, uh, how much of a part it plays in, the, like these, these solar plants, the ones that use focused sunlight uh, to create steam. Well, how do they start that? Well, first thing in the morning, they fire up the gas boiler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and you mentioned the the coal, and that's that's actually where what I saw happening to coal. I thought coal would figure out a way to you know desalinize water in in the in the ocean, and it would be used more towards that. And you know, Alex Epstein, um, I believe he pointed out in his book, and and I know the Rockefeller Foundation has pointed this out. Humans have been decarbonizing for 150 years naturally, long before the Sierra Club came along. We've been decarbonizing. We started with wood and hay and then, you know, went to coal and then to crude oil and natural gas and slowly trying to figure out some other things that work. And if you take a look at the hydrocarbons and the, and, and the dirty carbon molecules, if you will, they've been decreasing every time to where I think there's just a couple now with natural gas. So it, it's been going on for a long time. And, and this crash course that we have to somehow change our way of life overnight just seems so bizarre to me. I, it's that it's that extreme polarization that just is enabled out there that just seems so bizarre to me. But anyway, that's my two cents on that. Well, and and uh, speaking of the environmental, uh, the the thing that uh, in 1901 the the spindle top gusher came in in January of 1901 that ushered in a an era where people realized that oil was plentiful, they could use it for stuff, 
And the number one thing, well, I don't know about number one, a, a key part of that was they stopped killing whales for their oil. Uh, many uh, many uh, thousands of whales are, are, were killed mainly for their oil to use in oil lamps mm-hmm. in homes. And when, when with oil, then they were able to shift to fuel oil, to kerosene, and that sort of thing. That was the first wave, as you're talking about, and not only decarbonization, but of of uh, doing uh, of keeping whales from becoming extinct. I know some of them are still endangered, and there's still people out there poaching and all that. But the, the mass killing of them was was done away with by the availability of kerosene for for lighting homes. As you say, that's been going on in a number of different ways for for 150 years, and and uh, the the. The, the the coal fires in London during the late 1800s, London was almost unlivable because of the pollution from from coal in those days. So even using uh, the, the the more polluting fuels, at least to capture them and put them in a certain small area where not everybody's using them, but with coal-fired generation, you can at least have a chance to scrub that than when when you put it in one confined area and so even even switching to electricity with with coal like sort of helped that some and i know there, there's still efforts to to clean up coal even more if they can make that economical so i don't want to bash coal even though it's it's a harder one to to justify in, in this day and age, but I think even it still has some use if it's done right. Well, I do too, and, and that's the thing about coal is I think it just needs to be reinvented and repurposed because it's a very useful uh, commodity. From yeah, it's it's probably the most reliable source for energy and heat, etc. But like I said, there there's a lot of other properties that coal has from uh, de, you know from from filtration to uh, you mentioned in the wind turbines, but also in solar panels. It's used in solar yep. panels too. So, I'm looking at you know the the solar and wind and and everything along those lines. And I, I take a look at the last 40 years, and they've had major subsidies, and and they haven't hit their milestones. And I've seen kind of this crash course of trying to get off of fossil fuels. It's just it's so bizarre how. As soon as the masters of the marketplace kind of came in and started trying to play, you know, video games and board games with the economy, that really seemed to take away from the natural evolution of energy in my mind. Um, that might be a little bit too hippy-dippy talk, but it, it, it certainly seems like just I, I get a little bit irritated because if they would shift a certain amount of those subsidies away from uh, wind and solar to natural gas, I think they could solve that flaring problem overnight. I mean, like within a year, they could probably solve it because that would allow a nice st- uh, uh, stimulus into the research and development wing of of the you know the natural gas area. And I just think it would do wonders. But it turns into politics because all of a sudden now you're you you know you're against a f- renewable energy. It's like no, I'm I'm kind of just for accountability. That's all? Yeah. And I'd like to know your thoughts on that, about the flaring natural gas and, and figuring out a way to really solve that issue, because to me it's very solvable, very solvable. 
Well, there are a number of things. The, the first thing to do, as you said, would be to, uh, as we talked about earlier, to, to allow pipelines to be built. And it, it's true, the, the number I've heard that in Texas, particularly in the Permian, which uh, last year became the most prolific basin in the entire world, you know, surpassing the big field in uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, what will happen to it, you know, with all this going on, I don't know, it may drop down. But we were flaring enough natural gas each day, flaring enough to generate electricity for every to to light every home in the state of Texas. It was every day. It was just going up and not even smoke. <laughs> hmm. uh, so I that is a problem, and uh, it's something that the Texas Railroad Commission, which if you're not from Texas, you'd say, well, why does the Railroad Commission have anything to do with oil and gas? Well, it has to do with what we were talking about earlier that in the old days. Uh, Oil, and, uh, oil was shipped through rail cars, and so the Railroad Commission, uh, all it does now, it has nothing to do with transportation, all it does is control oil and gas, but they were allowing permits for, uh, well, they're, they're supposed to, I'm going to get way off into something that I'm not an expert in here, but there are rules about how long you can flare gas waiting for uh, the it to be, uh, a well to be connected to a pipeline, and with the pipelines being basically full, they were kind of waiving those restrictions. It was like 30 days, but in, in the Permian, oil, uh, oil is, the, is the main thing. Natural gas, for a lot of people, is basically a nuisance. They don't they make their money off the oil and gas, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, off of oil, and um, gas is a byproduct, so it hasn't had a high priority, but that's one of those things where there are there are, you know there are other ways to to deal with that. There are companies that sell uh, compressors that run off of produced natural gas, and uh, some of the some of the challenge there is that not all natural gas is pure. A lot some of it has a lot of nitrogen, and some of it has some helium in it, some other things. So you have to have something that will work on a wide range of BTU density. But and, and that's but you'd have to have a whole lot of those out there to make up for. The, the BTUs are going up in that. So the, the number one thing to do is to allow pipelines to be built um, and generate electricity or be exported uh, through LNG, which there are some challenges with those markets right now because of the COVID uh, situation. But I don't know. I take a look at some of these crazy capitalists out there that are mining Bitcoin with uh, oh, yeah. flared gas and you got, you know, other ones turning into, you know, gas on site. And I, I always give the example of who knows, we could probably invent some super plastic and pretty soon everybody can get a pool in their backyard for a thousand bucks because the mold is some sort of super plastic. I don't know. I'm just, just throwing a few things out there to where, you know, the pipelines work and the pipelines are the safest, but they're not the hundred percent. You know, I'm talking about the, the, you know, 20 10 percent of the wells that just they don't get to the pipes you know they just it, it, they're too too remote for whatever reason or whatever or the case they don't have enough be. production to make it worth yeah a right exactly you know there's always there's always a reason on on some of them but it's interesting because what's happening in like lake charles over in louisiana you take you know europe which you know they're paying 15 16 17 18 bucks for natural gas 
We're paying what three bucks minus in some days. China's paying about eight bucks. And what's happened? I think it was a French company that is building a natural gas processing plant because it's cheaper to get the gas, put it in Lake Charles, and ship it over to France than it is to buy it. <laughs> it's just yeah, yeah. In fact, you're you're quoting some prices. I pulled up some prices this morning. Actually, uh, it's about a dollar fifty per million BTUs this morning, and at the Waha Hub out by Pecos in West Texas, it's less than a dollar. And some of that's because the, the, the pipelines are still jammed. There have been some new ones open up, and production has dropped a little bit, but there's still <laughs> uh, that, that's really cheap. So I can imagine, uh, you know, yeah, that it would be cheaper to send it overseas. Well, totally. That, and, and when I heard that, it blew my mind. But as soon as I heard that, it instantly made sense, just off of simple fourth-grade math. <laughs> just yeah. so anyway but uh so talk to me a little bit about what's going on in your neck of the woods are you still down in midland well at the moment i am actually you were talking about lake charles at this moment i am on the north shore uh with some family uh stuff so i uh, it's all good but um so since i i've office at home since 1995 the freelance writer and all that so I can basically work wherever I, wherever I need to be. So um, that's quite different from the this coastal area is quite different from the Permian where it never rains. Here it rains almost every day. <laughs> and uh, but it's also an oil and gas area here, so it's it's a lot of familiar territory. Yeah, there's you know, Louisiana had a lot of economic activity, a lot of building, like you said, down in that Lake Charles area. And, of course, Texas had a lot in the Corpus Christi area as well as they were ramping up their ports, getting ready for a lot of exporting, without a doubt. And um, so it's just, it's, I, I got to revisit some of those stories to find out just if it's still going on or not. But it's, um, yeah. Well, there, yeah, there's a lot of building. The port of Corpus Christi is, is one that's really ramping up for that. Their, their point is that the port of Houston is mostly... Most of what goes there is already going to refineries up and, up and down that part of the coast. And Corpus doesn't have, I think they may have one or two small refineries there, but uh, they're ramping up for exports, especially for those, uh, the, the very large crude carriers, the VLCCs. And uh, in Louisiana, they're authored Loop, uh, Louisiana Offshore, I forget exactly what that stands for, but they're, they're, it's the Loop. Port used to be for import, and they're they're in the process of switching it to export. And I've been told that up to 50% of the oil and gas produced in the Permian goes for export nowadays. Really? That's a, that's a pretty scary number when you realize that right now exports are down. Uh, yeah. So uh, that you know, it, it was illegal to export. Uh, or, uh, domestically produced oil until late 2015. It was a, uh, a, a law that had been passed in the late 70s when, when we had those uh, Arab oil, what they called Arab oil embargo uh, times. And so we decided we weren't going to export any of ours. We're going to save it all here. Well, as the market changed, you know, 40 years later or, or more than that was rescinded in 20, late 2015. So in 2016, we began exporting oil. And gas. By the way, 
That do you remember when that happened in 2015? Yes. Do you remember how ridiculous it got? There's a great example of how stupid politics gets because they were it was it was down to a technicality of certain I mean it was it was so weird had to do with how they loaded it or a certain amount of sulfur and Anyway, they, it was it was playing politics with oil, so they could send it out, and then they just sort of like, okay, we got to update this thing. It was just it was ridiculous. Well, oil is always politics. Uh, I mean, that's that it's political survival. That's why uh, in world the, the early uh, right before World War II started, that's why the Germans wanted Czechoslovakia. They didn't care about the Sudetenland. They they cared about it because it had oil. The the Japanese uh, attacked the Philippines because it had oil. Uh, well, that was the argument for uh, Afghanistan was lithium, you know, was that was uh, the, you know, that was that was the yeah. big conspiracy behind that, I guess. The Kuwait uh, war in uh, what 1992, uh, you know, if that was just a little desert com- country over there nobody would have cared who took it over. Yeah, you know that's right. And you know, so much of the economy is is oil and gas, you know. I mean, wh- whether it's the military that's you know protecting the oil and gas reserves or whether it's the oil and gas refineries that need us to get our goods and services to the market you know that type of thing there there's there's a lot to be said about energy is the economy really that there's a lot to yep. be said about that and um i don't feel bad saying that to be honest well yeah i mean uh, energy well before there was any oil and gas the the Oh, you know, why did they, back in ancient times, why did the Babylonians and the Assyrians conquer all the surrounding territory so they could use their people for forced labor? <laughs> that was energy. Yeah. No, it's true. And, you know, a lot of the reasons why the uh, gold and silver and, and copper and platinum and palladium carry their intrinsic value through the years is because it's a good conductor of electricity. And when you take a look at your iPhone and you take a look at the nuclear bombs and et cetera, they need silver and gold for the wiring because the energy is so intense. But it's, yeah. it's malleable, and it, it's a very good conductor. You know, copper is kind of the entry level. They, they found uh, copper clay pot batteries in the Egyptian tombs. So they, we, they were wow. understanding... Uh, the power of copper and, and, and storage of energy back in those days. So now we're getting in the hippy-dippy. This, folks, this is what happens when you get a couple of writers on, uh, on the line. Because, I, by the way, I'm a writer by trade. That's how I first got into the media. I'm, I'm actually a writer. I just do this podcast and radio stuff to pay the bills because no, nobody pays us writers anymore. So um, you gotta, you got to stay creative. But uh, we should probably give you, give you another plug so you can get your bills paid. So people do pay you for your writing. So um, That's the plan. <laughs> that's, see, exactly. That's, that's the point yeah. there, folks. But uh, uh, do you, have you got a website, or how, how can people get in touch with you if they want to uh, contract you out for some, for some writing services or et cetera? Sure. Uh, my website, uh, my company is fit to print, but that as a web address is already taken, so my website's under my name. It's paulmwiseman.com. M is in Michael, my middle name, so it's paulmwiseman.com. And I have an email address set up there, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm I get on Twitter every now and then, but I don't don't look for me there because I'm not on that often. I probably should be, but uh, <laughs> that's 
I can only keep up with so much at a time. But uh, yeah, this conversation, when you're dealing with two writers, you're also dealing with two people that read. So that's, uh, I, have, I, I tell people I know a little bit about a whole lot of stuff, but it, you know, I'm inch deep and 10 miles wide, but I have been fortunate enough to write for a, a lot of different areas of the oil and gas industry. So that lives, I know a little bit about exports, a little bit about pipelines and uh, upstream and, and that sort of thing. So it makes, uh, I, I, I can get into a conversation with almost anybody. Uh, usually, it, this is uh, different for me because I'm usually, I'm the one asking the questions. So uh, <laughs> I'm on a different side of the interview situation this time. It's bizarre. It's I, Every Friday I do a interview with uh, Black Hills Wyoming Radio. And um We'll go. I'll talk for fifteen straight minutes sometimes, and and because um, I'm not used to you know being able to talk. Yeah. I'm used to just being able to ask the questions, and even those I get a little long winded. But I'm trying to do more of a conversational interview as my style, like a Charlie Rose, or that. I suppose that's yeah. after after the um, Me Too generation. It can't say Charlie Rose anymore. So whoever the modern day. One is, I guess. Hey, it's open. If anybody's listening, I'll take that job. I guess. What the heck? I love, I love good oak oak table conversations. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. You know, it, it's it's no judgment on the table here. We're just gonna, you know, flesh out and and flush out depending on which dialect you want to have. It's flesh out, by the way. Uh, that's the old version of it. Uh, of a topic because it's it's great stuff. So uh, we'd like to like to have you back to make sure we can talk about some other things. Um, but what are you working on right now? And I'll, I'll just give you kind of the final word so you can talk about whatever you'd like. I like to let guests uh, kind of have the final word. That way, the question isn't framed by me. So the floor is yours, sir. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, there, there's some things that I can't talk about because of con- I have confidentiality uh, stuff. But I'm working on some. Uh, uh, let's see, boy, I'm on the spot here. Now I got to think fast. <laughs> uh, I've done some writing for a British publication called Tank Storage Magazine. I've got a, uh, a uh, an article in the one that just came out there, and I'll be I'm planning to do another one for them in in the fall. That's where I learn about tankers and stuff like that. But I'm also working on one for the Premium Basin Oil and Gas Magazine about environmental. So we talked about environmental. Uh, stuff uh, about this one will be about environmental um, companies that do cleanups and, and compliance and stuff like that. And another one, another one on another one on drones. And that, that's that's a fun topic. I'll uh, once that one comes out, I can kind of give you some uh, information on that. There's a lot of new stuff happening with drones. 